This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT12. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Melissa Harris-Perry, The David Pakman Show, This Week in Blackness, Jeremy Loveday, Rationally Speaking, Activism from the Unfuck It Up Project, Lacey Green, and The Majority Report. Anonymous is after another Steubenville, Ohio-type rape case, except this time it took place in Maryville, Missouri. Now, this alleged rape involved a 17-year-old high school student who allegedly raped a 14-year-old high school student. He was originally charged with a felony and a misdemeanor. However, those charges were dropped, even though he admitted to having sex with her after she uh, had a lot of alcohol. So uh, this 14-year-old girl, her name is Daisy Coleman, was left in the cold in 22 degree weather in her front lawn right after she was allegedly raped. Um, she had gone over to a sleepover with her friend who was 13 years old. Uh, she had been talking to the 17 year old football player from her high school and while they were sleeping over uh, they decided let's sneak out of the house and let's go meet up with these boys. While they met up uh, they continued to drink and at, at some point Daisy Coleman lost consciousness. She did not know what was going on and neither did the 13 year old girl that she went to this get-together with. Um, that was when she allegedly had sex uh, with the 17-year-old. His name is Matthew Barnett. And um, she does not recall or remember anything about it. All she remembers is waking up on her front lawn, uh, freezing cold. She noticed that her genitalia was in pain. So her mother took her to the hospital where they found um, vaginal tears and they realized that she had been raped. So now... The guy says, yes, we did have sex. Yes, she had been drinking, right? Now, when she, all the way, many, many hours later, when she goes to the hospital, she's a .13 alcohol level, mm -hmm. indicating that she was, had a significant alcohol level many hours ago, of course. She was at the hospital seven hours after getting to that get-together and drinking. So that's already a .13. So yeah. uh, we already know that they had the sex, so it's not just a matter of, oh, you know, they think that, you know, her genitalia hurt, et cetera. He admits it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, now, this gets all, you know, brushed under the carpet in a way that we're going to explain in a second. But for, I, for the people who are going to defend the guy, he's a popular guy and his family's connected in the area. I, I, I know it. I, what they're going to say, because they've said it in previous cases, is, ah, look, she goes to the party, she gets drunk, she sleeps with the guy, and then later when her parents find out, she feels guilty, and then she says it was rape, right? And that's why they hound her. But wait a minute. If it wasn't rape, why did you just drop her off in the 22 degree weather, drop her in the, in the front lawn basically unconscious? Yeah, wearing nothing but sweatpants and a t-shirt, by the way. That doesn't seem like it was awfully consensual. So, I mean, if that's how you end your consensual dates, if you can call it that, then you got serious mental issues, man. So, so, understand that perspective as we tell you the rest of the story. So, initially, prosecutors believed that they had a clear-cut case. Uh, they had enough evidence to actually go ahead with the trial. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Matthew Barnett and also a gentleman by the name of Zach uh, were charged. Zach was charged because he was filming it as it was occurring. So, there was actually video evidence indicating that this girl was unconscious and she was basically being raped by this guy. Um, and so prosecutors thought, we have enough evidence, let's go forward. But then all of a sudden, a few days later, the charges were mysteriously dropped. 
And prosecutors and authorities said that the reason why they dropped the charges was because the victim and the victim's mother refused to cooperate. Except the victim and the victim's mother completely deny that, and they are outraged that the charges have been dropped. They wanted to move forward with the case. Um, so one thing to keep in mind that I find fascinating about this, and of course this is what Anonymous is trying to investigate, is that Matthew Barnett's grandfather was a state representative in Missouri. In fact, he was reelected four times. He served four terms. Um, so they are thinking that maybe there were some favors called behind the scenes. And also because of the fact that he was in the football team and everybody loves the football team, people wanted to give him a pass anyway. So we've seen this in a number of instances where the victim is victimized again. And then they basically ran her out of town, yep. right? And so the... And I don't blame the mom. The mom's like, look, I felt like we were in, she was in to some degree danger. And, and she's getting harangued at school nonstop. They're saying she deserves it. One person, one girl went to the homecoming dance wearing a dress that said, uh, Matthew one, uh, Daisy zero. Oh my like, God. I mean, it's just like the most disgusting stuff you can ever imagine. And it's very similar to the Steubenville, Ohio case because it's vic blaming the victim, making the victim seem like she's some sort of whore that deserves it, and, and bullying her to the point where she and her family literally have to move 40 miles away because they can't deal with all the bullying and all the torment. One other super dicey part of this is they move away, and then mysteriously their old house burns down. Yep. Could have been an accident, could happen, so amazing coincidence. You know, you don't know, you'd have to actually prosecute if the prosecutor was actually going to do his job. It's an awfully weird thing if the like the victim saying no I don't want to cooperate when they were the ones the whole, I don't that think that the case that seems forward. really unbelievable that the victim said they didn't want to cooperate. So you really got to wonder what the prosecutor is up to who all of a sudden pulled this case. Right. So now look, you got to judge it on its merits and you we can't just sit here in the studio and decide what happened. You'd have to know more, but I would want another person looking at that case that wasn't the original prosecutor. Absolutely, and unfortunately I think the only other person or people will be anonymous because at this point the authorities there, are they drop the charges, they don't want to move forward with any type of trial. Anonymous is upset about that and that's why they released the following statement. We demand an immediate investigation into the handling by local authorities of Daisy's case. Why were the suspects initially arrested and then released? How was video and medical evidence not enough to put one of these football players inside a courtroom? What is the connection of these prosecutors, if any, to Representative Rex Barnett? Most of all, we are wondering, how do the residents of Maryville sleep at night? We have heard Daisy's story far too often. We heard it from Stephenville, Halifax and Dutar Pradesh. In some cases, action meant nothing because it couldn't bring them back. Both Amanda Todd and Greta Parsons, girls not much older than Daisy, took their own lives after the adults, the police and the school system, failed to protect them. If Maribel won't defend these young girls, if the police are too cowardly or corrupt to do their jobs, if justice system has abandoned them, then someone else will have to stand for them. Mayor Jim Fall, your hands are dirty. Maribel. Now look, we shouldn't have to rely on vigilante justice, but I think the whole reason Anonymous exists is because of how much our government has let us down. We feel like we can't count on it anymore. The corruption is so systemic that, like in the old days, I feel like there's some chance a higher level prosecutor would have come in and said, whoa, whoa, whoa let's review this case. 
or a governor or someone, right? Now you feel like if you're an average guy, you have almost no chance. That's why you have groups like Anonymous come around and say, hey, wait a minute, we're going to focus attention on this until all of a sudden the little guy at least has a chance. Yeah, and I, I, I agree that it's sad that you have to rely on vigilante justice or vigilante investigation into stories like right. this and cases like this. But I'm thankful that it exists because if it wasn't for Anonymous, what happened in Steubenville would have been brushed under the rug and there would be absolutely no justice whatsoever. So I, I, I don't know how this will play out. It might play out differently. But I have absolutely no hope in the prosecutors in, in, in this story or any of the authorities that were originally working on this case because obviously something shady happened behind the scenes. If the mother and the victim are coming forward to the press right now saying that they're outraged and they want to cooperate and they want to move forward, then I don't really understand why they would just randomly decide to drop the charges. Yeah, and last note of caution, as Anna pointed out there, you should never do vigilante justice. It's not the right way to go. Vigilante investigation is like a weird phenomenon that didn't need to exist before, but now does exist, and thank God, because apparently the government oftentimes, unfortunately, doesn't want to investigate and just wants to move on. Sometimes we catch the real tough breaks But here's a trick that I've been working on Just say oops and move on Tweeted your boner to a college girl Just say oops and move on Or maybe you're a movie star And you end up at a bar Next thing you know you're getting blackout drunk And saying stuff about Jews We've been talking about the story that left us stunned this week this young woman, Courtney Andrews, survived being raped three times, twice at the age of 14 and once again at 18, by the same assailant, 25-year-old Austin Smith Clem, a one-time neighbor for family in Alabama. And for that, Clem got a sentence on November 13th that has sparked outrage and disbelief. Six years probation and two years in a non-violent community correction center. And zero real prison time. Courtney is not staying silent. She is making sure that people know about a rape sentence that some are calling illegal, and she is determined to fight this injustice. Joining me now is Courtney Andrews, now a student at the University of South Alabama. Also with her is her aunt, Melanie Johnson, and also Erin Carmone, national reporter for MSNBC.com. Thank you for being here. Um, start by telling me when you decided to tell and who you initially told. Um, I was 18 when I told. Um, actually, my best friend um, told for me because I didn't have heart to tell my parents. So, um, I, I absolutely understand that, and yet that has also been used against you as a survivor in this mm -hmm. case, as it so often is. That somehow, because you didn't react the way that people who have never survived this think you should have reacted, that that somehow says you were complicit in it. Tell me how you've had to fight back against that. Um, it's just that people don't understand like the feelings that come along with it. Um, being scared, the fact that I was young, I was a child. Um, you know, you threatened to hurt my family, you threatened to hurt me. Um, 
what was I supposed to do? And it's just hard because people aren't going to understand that. Um, and a lot of people that have a problem with it, it's going to be hard to change their attitude towards it. So I feel like there's not really a whole lot that I can do to change their mind. But you're doing a lot right now to try to change the minds of the people who know that this man did this mm -hmm. because he has been convicted of it and yet gave a sentence so light that it is hard to even think of it as a sentence. Right. So you were protecting yourself, protecting your family, protecting your privacy for so many years and now you're here having to reveal such a personal thing. Why did you make that decision to stand up and to have a voice in this moment? I just felt like if it happened with me, then it probably happens with other people. And if no one has really stood up and said anything about it, then maybe no one ever will if I don't. So I felt like it would kind of be an injustice to other people if I didn't. Um, and I just knew I had to do what I had to do. How angry is the family right now? Very angry, very disappointed. Um, it's just, we were floored by it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't understand it, it really. It's an understanding thing. How could it happen? I mean, when, when they read the sentence to us, we were like, what does that mean? What is, and we went and we were talking to the people and we we're like, what does that mean? And when they said no jail time, we we're looking at each other going, no. Nah. That you're understanding it wrong. It can't be. That can't be what it can't be. And of course, at that point, that's that's when you were the most angry. It's like mm -hmm. this can't be. But um, you know, and then you walk away, you thinking, what are we going to do? That they can't get away with that. Um, there are, for people who are not survivors, may not understand that there are multiple levels to this. There is the decision to tell, and then there is a decision to go forward with the criminal actions with court. And the decision to tell and the decision to go forward with criminal actions are very different choices. And often we don't do the second one because of exactly this. Right. This isn't even, Erin, a case where the survivor is not believed by a jury, which is so often the case, but where a jury believes you, mm -hmm. provides a conviction and then a judge refuses to sentence and in so doing says this is a nonviolent offense basically. Right. I think that the, there are many injustices here and it, an enormous injustice is the idea that these programs which are designated for nonviolent offenders like drug offenders who need healing and have not committed violence that the implicit idea here that rape is not a violent act when it is obviously a very violent act that is masked by all of our society's issues around the fact that it's also an intimate act. But to think about how extraordinary, first of all, your courage in coming forward that a majority of rape survivors will not report, I believe the number is 54%. Of those, the prosecutor has to decide that there's enough evidence to bring charges. Then if you're able to get a conviction, you know, an analysis by Rain showed that out of the cases that are convictions, 97 out of 100 will not serve a day in prison. So unfortunately, this is an extraordinary injustice that is all too common. I, um, we, you know, we believe in alternatives to sentencing on this show. We in fact talk about alternatives to sentencing pretty regularly, which support a program like the one that we're talking about here for nonviolent drug offenders for a variety of reasons. But this is clearly not what we are talking about at all. 
you've said that you feel scared now. The, your, this perpetrator, this convicted rapist, is now back in the community, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. And we know, actually, that, that rapists, that sexual violence is perpetrated by people who repeatedly do so, both in your condition and, and in, in your case, that's what happened. And so, I, I mean, I applaud you for saying that's exactly, you know, the reason to put yourself through this experience in the justice system is so that it won't happen again. And I, I guess, you know, this is, this is a, a tough one for me. We do conversations here about sexual assault, but um, none has ever hit closer to home for me and um, because my own story is so close to your story because I was the same age because it was a neighbor and um, although I finally told at about 20 never went forward to the court system for exactly this reason and my level of anger that you would have worked up the courage that you did to go forward and for this to happen so what is next um, in the courts is there any possibility of of a new sentence here? Well, um, my attorney, um, Brian, has filled out, you know, paperwork and stuff and um, presented it to the higher court um, to try and get us a new judge to do a new sentencing, um, but there is no guarantee on that. We haven't heard anything right. in yeah. days about it, so we don't know. From, from what I understand, the Alabama statute is written in a very contradictory, confusing way where it both says that this is a, you know, there's this kind of sentencing that should happen and then at the same time that it's eligible for community corrections and it's not. So maybe right. even if they aren't able to fix this particular injustice, people after you will benefit from your activism. Right. What do you need to feel safe? I mean, for him to be in prison, <laughs> I'm not going to feel safe other than that, you know, every time that I think about going home to see my parents. It's gonna be um, really hard every time I even think about my parents being home, you know. It just really bothers me and it scares me because they're there and I know I'm only 20, but I want to protect them. Because you didn't tell because you wanted to protect them. Yeah. I wanted to be strong for my family. I still want to be strong and if that meant dealing with it on my own, that's what I felt like I needed to do. Thank you for um, Thank you for telling. Thank you for pursuing it. Thank you for being here now. Um, it is, it's okay for it to keep feeling bad and um, to give yourself up. There's no timeline. It's okay to take the time you need to heal, okay? And we're gonna keep watching this story, all right? And we believe you. Thank you. I can feel it in my After all of this is gone, who would you rather be? I've been telling you guys about Squarespace for a few months now, and just to give you a little background information on that, one of the struggles with doing an ongoing ad campaign like this is to constantly think of new things to say to keep the ads sort of fresh. And Squarespace is great, they have lots of amazing features, but it's still a finite number, right? So I was worried that I'd run out of things to talk about. But amazingly, one of their best features is that they keep adding new features. It's like, you know, the, the genie that actually lets you wish for more wishes, which makes my job of simply telling you about the cool stuff that they have going on that much easier. So the new feature I get to tell you about today is their new integration and partnership with ShipStation. 
So if you're a merchant who sells anything online, Squarespace just became even more attractive uh, because ShipStation boasts features like printing shipping labels, marking orders as completed, notifying customers when their items have been shipped, and so on. And then they even integrate with fulfillment services like Shipware and Amazon. And so now all of that power is coming to Squarespace by the way of this partnership. So if you have an online store or you want to set one up, the reasons for setting up a site on Squarespace keep mounting. But even if you're not looking to sell online and you just need a website, features like this really give you an insight as to the type of forward-thinking, innovative company that you'd be putting your trust in. So you can try them free for 14 days. You can see what they can do to fit your personal needs. And then when you're ready to sign up, use the special offer code LEFT12. That's L-E-F-T and the number 12 to get 10% off your purchase. So I frankly recommend you sign up for a full year in advance. You get a bigger discount that way. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. Don't go Stay with the all unknown Stay away from the hugs All the chances we took Very big news out of the Army. The Army is going to discharge all convicted sex offenders. Kevin sent me the story. The Military Times has a write-up which says that the Secretary of the Army has issued an order to round up all of the convicted sex offenders in the service as soon as possible, is the quote, and initiate proceedings for discharging them from the Army. This is part of a broader campaign from the military to fight back against sexual assault. And now soldiers convicted of a sex offense, which the military includes uh, as rape and sexual assault, who are deployed, are going to have to come home and they will be discharged. Now, I have to tell you, Lewis, this is a good thing. Uh, obviously, if you are in the military and you're convicted of rape or sexual assault, you should no longer be in the military. You are a danger to your fellow troops. However, the really big issue here is the one that is being fought by, uh, for example, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat from New York State, uh, which is that we need to remove the reporting of sexual assault in the military from the chain of command. I've talked about this before, Lewis. This is the main problem with military and sex abuse, which is, even in cases of, of rape or sexual abuse, like with everything else that happens in the military, you have to go through the chain of command, going to your immediate superior to report it to them, and they, in turn, file a report with their superior. The problem here is an obvious one. Number one, superiors can be the perpetrators of rape or sexual assault. Number two, superiors can be buddy-buddy uh, with those who are accused of the rape and sexual assault, and it is inherently a system that is, that is open to corruption and that is open to causing fear of reporting the, the, the crime itself. So it's great that if you are convicted of rape or sexual assault, you're out of the military, but we need a system that will not dissuade individuals from reporting the rape or sexual assault, and we need a system that prevents individuals in the chain of command from just cutting off the claims altogether and preventing a full investigation. This is good, but we need that, Lewis. Yeah. Uh, at first, I was shocked when I, when I read this because I thought to myself, well, sex offenders were allowed to stay in there before this. How does that make any sense? <laughs> right. Okay, so that's the, obviously ridiculous. But yeah, obviously, the chain of command is a big problem. And you could probably take the number of sex offenders that will be discharged from this and uh, quadruple it, maybe even more. And, and that's the number of people who have gotten away with this who are still in the military. And uh, that is, is the issue.
hate to say this, I hate to sound like be that guy, but but humans are rapists. Let's if you look look at history. Just go down to history. Now that's one thing Things I think. Always end in some sort of rape. Now you know I. You're right, and it's funny. I've always. I know said Dasha, that I, I just like I looked at Dasha's face, and Dasha's like, no. "Oh my god!" Uh, but but that, Dasha, but that, am I wrong? As an academic, am I wrong? Is our history? How full often of rape? do we? How often do things happen, and all of a sudden it ends in, and then they raped everyone? Well, okay, yes. I mean, basically, <laughs> the end of any good book is, and then they were raping everybody, and then they but raped everybody. It's actually, it's not good. It's still not good for us. I mean, there's still plenty of there are plenty of studies that actually show that we're we're that we are actually pushing up against our nature to hurt each other. It's not I, good for the herd. It's bad, bad for the herd. I'm, you know, what? it's so funny. It's it's bad for the herd, yet it happens over and over yeah. and over and over and over and over and over. You know something? I think that that is the reason why we have these discussions, why we hem and haw about the varying degrees of rape, is because I think for us to really have the discussion, everyone has to understand their role. All of all of us men have to understand our role. As rapists, it's on our resume. You know what I mean? We have to own that. And I don't think we're willing to own the actions of other men that aren't us. And we, we shy away from it and we fight it really vigorously. And as a result, we've now have these multiple degrees of rape, which is not really rape. And she was drunk and we can go on. We can, we can pay someone can get paid $500,000 to say, well, she was drunk though. No. You know, yeah. yeah. No, I'm sorry. We- I'm sorry. Humans rape. And apparently, and, and we won't, and we won't ever just acknowledge the fact that, uh, this, this was, this is a bad thing and that we need to, we need to stop it. Like it's, it's now, I would argue we've been raping from millennia. Like I'm not, like I'm not, I'm not even lying. It's not like I, this is not hyperbole. Like open a history book. We've been raping for millennia. Every story, every story of a land being taken somehow ends in rape. Well, well, it doesn't usually end. It's actually the, it's a tool oh, of warfare. Yes, as a part of warfare to dehumanize, uh, the people that you are, in fact, stealing from or destroying or something like that. You then rape them and, and, t- and take their women and rape them. Like, that's cause, uh, I mean, down in, into history, the fact that, like, it's only within, it's only in modern times that the idea that a woman turning down her husband, uh, 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 it could be called rape. Cause for many moon, that wasn't rape if a man took it from his wife. Is that even, I mean, here's the problem. I even have to ask the question, is that in every state? You know what? I don't know. See? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a problem too. Either the, the last law was passed about that or there's still a few hangers on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm and looking we, at you. We, Fill in the blank state. You 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 look. You just go down the history of this, and you look at this. It's a much bigger problem. It's a part. It's a part. It's a part of like it's it's a part of humankind in a way that is is disturbing and something that we don't really want to stop for a moment and talk about. And I believe and I believe that is in fact what like what Aaron said here. It's in fact the issue. The problem is that it's a part of what and how we do things and we don't like uh, labeling it as rape because once you label these things as rape and as wrong then you have to actually have that moment to look back at all the wrong that has ever occurred the fact well, that, think, well, you're, also, that you have yeah, in your family it. in your family someone was probably that uh, an aunt or uncle or, or, or your mom was raped by by by, by a, a male of a, a female uh, i mean a male member of the family you, you have to actually acknowledge that once someone says no it is in fact rape the list, the amount of people that have gone through that is gigantic. And to acknowledge or, that would be to acknowledge our fault as a society. Say or again, the very Dasha? fact that, well, just the very fact that you couldn't say anything at all. I mean, that was, a, right. that was the case with this girl was that, well, she didn't say no, dot, 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 because right. she was unconscious. Right. Right. Yeah, just sorry. Sorry about that. Hope you guys enjoy that. Uh, we're, we're a nation of rapists. Yay. What else we got? 
I'm sorry. A society of rapists. So a world of rapists, really. So I'm, I'm pretty sure you can go into everyone's history and go, oh, look, there's some rape going on there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would ar- also argue, too, that having to deal with with um, the the problem of rape in society means that we'd also have to deal with current issues like inequality and uh, power. Nobody wants to do that. And also the fact that uh, that no, who wants to actually have that moment to acknowledge that uh, that this is such a problem and that we have ignored it? Because also to acknowledge it as a problem is to also acknowledge all the years we didn't acknowledge it as a problem. It's one of the reasons I would argue one of the issues that uh, that goes along with racism and institutionalized bullshit is because to acknowledge that what what's wrong and to fix what's wrong would mean that we have to acknowledge the years and years and years of shit being broken and the years and all the people that were complicit in everything being broken. Then all of a sudden, everyone has to acknowledge that and take that hit. Take the hit like, like, I added to this. I didn't do something. I am wrong. And people refuse to do that. Hence, we will always hem and haw and go, So maybe, maybe, is it really rape? Is it really rape? I work and I sleep and I dance and I'm dead. I'm eating, I'm laughing, I'm loving myself. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. It's all too familiar. Fault lines written by tongues, bitten by silence. Thoughts formed when we weren't searching for violence in our questions, our suggestions. It's all too familiar. What was she wearing? Was she walking alone? She shouldn't have drank so much. She should have been more careful. She shouldn't have, she should have, she like it was her fault. Like gender violence isn't a man's issue. Like, men can't help themselves. Like, the responsibility for one's own actions doesn't fall on one's own shoulders. Like, men don't have the power to change how men act. And remember, as a young teen, learning the facts. One in three. One in three made me sick. How could men like me do this? They couldn't. I thought, they, they couldn't. They must be monsters. They must be monsters, monsters in the masks of men. Monsters in the masks of men rearranged their faces until I can no longer see myself in them monsters. And I remember going to a party in East Vancouver and seeing a patch on my friend's jacket that said, Stop Rape. The message so clear, so inarguably simple, and yet it left a bad taste because it jarred me from my place of comfort. Because it reminded me of the reality we all face. And that initial reaction, my initial reaction, was me choosing silence, therefore allowing for violence. And that was a clear case of the culture of rape. And I remember 
in the dressing room cheering along as a teammate proclaimed that in victory we had raped the other team. Or in the lunchroom when I'm, my boss made a sexist joke and I said nothing. Or yesterday when I pulled on an article of clothing and referred to it as a wife beater. This culture of violence touches us all. And by dismissing perpetrators as monsters, it allows us not to analyze our own actions. Men, take your masks off. Men, take responsibility. Men, open your mouths wider. Show more than your teeth. There was a softness in your throat waiting to be freed. Men, we are responsible for the vast majority of violence. Men, it's an epidemic. Men, don't think that it has to be this way. Men, if you could make the world safer for the women you love, for all women, children, and men, wouldn't you? Men, you can. Men, we need you to be courageous, to speak up, and to be more than a bystander. Men, put your masks down. Men, let's look each other in the eyes. Men, let's talk. was actually debated among a number of commenters. Um, I don't remember who initially posed it, but it got a lot of play. Um, Ian Pollock, uh, Darshan Chande, and Roy were among the people debating this. Um, they were uh, they were debating the question of how much uh, how we decide how much blame to assign or how much blame is deserved by a victim who like knowingly or carelessly contributed to their own victimization. So. Um, uh, one example that was mentioned was uh, uh, like women wearing revealing clothing and thereby increasing the chances of them getting assaulted. Um, another example was uh, someone like leaving their wallet, like flashing a lot of money around um, and thereby increasing the chances of themselves getting robbed. Right. Um, and the reason that I really wanted to address this question uh, was that I, I think my thinking about it was somewhat confused until relatively recently. Um, and what really helped me uh, resolve the confusion was uh, was recognizing that the question itself, as originally posed, uh, how much blame does such a victim deserve, uh, is not really logically well formed. And there are you can instead disambiguate the question into uh, a set of actually logically well formed questions, all of which you can answer. So one such question would be. Um, how much does it increase your chances of getting victimized if you do X, Y, or Z, right. for example? Um, and that is an empirical question, which has an answer. Uh, another question is uh, not really an empirical question, but just sort of a decision that we like collectively as a society make, uh, which is how much do we want to legally hold someone responsible for what happens to them if they do uh, X, Y, or Z? Like, do we want to um, not punish robbers if uh, the the person that they robbed flashed their money around? Do we wa right. want to not punish rapists if a woman was dressed provocatively? Our answers are no. We, we do not want to have that, that kind of policy so. in place. Right. right. Um, and then the third question that you could ask is, 
Um, it is an empirical question, but it's just an empirical question about how sympathetic you feel towards someone uh, who was victimized because right. of what they did that contributed in some way to that, uh, causally contributed to that victimization. And there's not really, um, I would argue there's not an objectively correct answer about how sympathetic to feel right. uh, to someone. Yeah, and no, that what you, people are sort of reaching for when they argue about how much blame someone deserves is they, it seems like they're implying that there is a right answer about how sympathetic you should feel. Or maybe they, they're, I'm not sure if they know exactly what they're arguing about. They might be arguing about the legal question. They might be arguing about the the question that I don't think is a real question about what the right amount of sympathy to have is. Right. Now, I, I, I agree with you, with, with your take. I, I think that uh, the problem with the question, which I think, by the way, was, was posed by Ian uh, Oh, by Pollock. Ian, okay. Um, but the, the, the problem is that there is an ambiguity in the question. Uh, in particular, there is an ambiguity in the word blame. Uh, you know, and, and you separated, I think, uh, I think very clearly. The first, especially the first two um, uh, examples you gave. You know, the, the, the first distinction you made was between, you know, but if by blame you mean, you know, how much causally did you contribute to uh, the event? Well, then one could argue that human beings, being human beings, you know, if you flash your money or, or wear a mini skirt or whatever it is, uh, yes, you did contribute causally to what happened because. Human beings react in a certain way. Uh, some human beings, probabilistically, anyway. Right, probabilistically, like right. Uh, so, in that sense, you are to quote unquote blame, but it's not a moral blame. It's a causal. It's a causal efficiency uh, situation. The second example, second uh, meaning that you were pointing out, is actually really an ethical one, a, mo a moral one. That is, you know, frankly, wearing uh, mini skirts or, or flashing money, it's not illegal. We don't consider that a, a you know a moral deficit of somebody who does that sort of thing. At least most of us don't. Uh, and therefore, the moral blame is entirely on the act, on the on the perpetrator of of the crime, and not on on the victim. So the victim is causally co-responsible to some extent, but it's not morally co-responsible. And that distinction, I think, it's it's very important. You made it very clearly. The third aspect is that you know the emotional reaction. Uh, there, you're right. It's an it's both an empirical question, and I don't think necessarily that these are a right answer, although. I suspect that if people were to make that distinction between sort of causal uh, uh, efficiency, you know, a contribution and and moral culpability, uh, things would actually th that distinction would actually clarify even one's own feelings about uh, about the situation. Uh, the example that Ian was one of the examples actually you didn't, that you didn't mention that I thought was interesting. Ian was. Um, uh, the murders by Afghan mobs um, last year mm, of right, UN workers, right. which were, was incited by Terry Jones burning the Quran, right? And so the idea there is that, you know, Terry Jones should have known by doing what he did that that probably was going to cause uh, a certain kind of reaction by certain kinds of certain, certain people. But at the same time, so, so he's causally responsible. But is it, since we don't think there is anything, you know, immoral or or or, or unethical or illegal, certainly about burning a book, uh, even though if it ha happened to be somebody else's sacred book, then frankly, it's it's a matter, you know, the moral responsibility is still squarely on the shoulders of people who actually kill in response to that kind of of, uh, of action. I mean, you can make the argument also from a secular perspective, right? There was a similar situation when the famous Danish cartoons of the Prophet were published. And, you know, people actually have made the argument that the, the cartoon authors uh, were actually responsible, uh, obviously indirectly, for the mayhem that followed. And, again, causally, yes, but morally, I, I seriously doubt it. 
Yeah, it's really hard to phrase that statement about um, the causal connection in a way that doesn't sound like blame. Blame, right. Exactly. Um, and so I'd actually even prefer, I mean, even though I think it is correct to say that someone causally contributed to their own victimization, like officially that's correct, the wording that I prefer because it doesn't trigger that emotional reaction is um, there is like a higher probability of the victimization yeah. if you do X as opposed to if you do Y. Because yeah. um, then like words like responsible and contributed to right. sound like blame. They um, do sound like blame. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Um, I, I just like one last comment on that. Uh, I, one, one thing that became clearer to me after thinking about this and talking to some friends about it a while ago was that there's, uh, there's a difference between the advice you give in private and the advice you give in public as sort of a mm -hmm. policy statement. Sure. And so a lot of the, um, a lot of the brouhaha's that have occurred around this kind of question have been, uh, for example, uh, there have been a number of cases where a police officer or someone makes a statement advising women not to like get drunk at bars or not to dress provocatively or not to go in like certain neighborhoods or like out alone or something like that. And people, uh, a lot of people get really offended that it sounds like the guy's blaming women for their own victimization right. um, and say, no, the blame should be on the perpetrators of the crime, not on the women themselves. Women should be able to dress however they want and, you know, get drunk if they want to. Um, and then other people respond like, well, it is empirically true that like, you know, the probability of a victimization goes up if you do these various things. So what's wrong with what he's saying? Like, isn't that good advice to warn people about this, you know, probability? And, and I think at some point I was sort of more in that latter camp, but after thinking about it more, I realized that, um, what is good advice when you give it like in person, like, you know, mother to daughter or friend to friend right. is, uh, it has a different effect when you state it publicly, because when you state it publicly, even though it's still an empirically true claim, it, uh, it has the effect of implying that our society should be focused more on changing the actions of women than on changing the actions right. of, of men. And so, you know, right. it's shifting, uh, at least the perception from a causal component to a moral component right um, and, and there which is not what we want uh clearly so yes as a sound advice to a friend or to your daughter it's perfectly sound and by all means go on and, and and keep doing it but a police officer a mayor or whatever other official uh personality should not be engaged in that sort of thing they should simply squarely say no it's unacceptable that you know uh, women get raped or whatever the or, or money gets stolen whatever it is the, the situation that we're talking about yeah i think i just i had never really made that distinction between the private versus public advice before but i think it's an important one to make One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
This Best of Left activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where they are working to promote organizations and individuals working to change the world. Today's campaign, Rain. With New Year's right around the corner, the annual onslaught of how not to get raped advice is most certainly about to hit the newsstands and airwaves. For reasons already covered on this show, such advice is problematic to say the least. It redirects blame, imposes shame, and isolates the victims while perpetuating rather than addressing rape culture. An American is assaulted every two minutes. 60% of those assaults are not reported. 97% of rapists see no jail time. These stats can be paralyzed or they can move you to action. RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, is the country's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Their National Sexual Assault Hotline, 1-800-656-HOPE, and online hotline at rain.org are staffed 24 hours a day, 7 days a week with trained volunteers. In addition to their direct work with survivors, RAIN provides support for partners and families, works with the media to raise awareness, reaches out to colleges to educate students and staff, and works to improve the criminal justice system through their policy department. Routinely named one of the top charities in the country, an impressive 88 cents out of every dollar that comes in goes directly to preventing sexual violence and helping victims. If you're so moved, through December 31st, donations to RAIN will be doubled through a matching pledge from a generous supporter. Donating is not the only way to help. Volunteers are always needed to staff hotlines, provide support to local rape crisis centers across the country, raise money, and raise awareness. RAIN has helped more than 1.5 million people through the hotlines alone, and with your help, this crucial work can continue. Links for today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places, and please visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for updates on this and other activism opportunities. Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy you can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up? Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? I started experiencing street harassment from men when I was about 13 years old. At first, I thought it was cool. I was like, oh yeah, I'm fly. What? Then it happened again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. By the like 20th time that this has happened, I realized a few things. One, it only happened when I was alone or with other women. Two, it didn't matter what I was wearing. I thought, hey, maybe if I look like shit, they'll leave me alone. Wrong. I also realized that it happened to every single woman that I know. When I say street harassment, I'm talking about cat calls. Looking good, girl. So fine. You look really nice. Unwanted sexual advances. I tell that. Perhaps to kill, girl. You got some nice titties. Getting in my space. Hey, girl, how's it going? What you up to? Where are you going? Making rude gestures. Whistling, honking, you get the idea, right? Last week I was walking home from work and some dude decided that it would be totally appropriate to follow me for three blocks. Hey girl, where are you going? Hey girl, why won't you look at me? Hey girl, are you available? Eventually I whipped around and told him that I was available to punch him in the fucking face if he doesn't leave me alone. Whoa, girl, calm down. I just want to give you a compliment. Where the fuck did you learn to compliment someone? 
glaringly obvious fact that this guy doesn't seem to realize is that what he's doing is completely creepy. Well, that is, until he experiences it himself. In the same breath that one of these guys will holler at women on the streets, they'll turn around and be totally freaked out about a gay guy hitting on them at a bar. Yeah. I feel dread, especially if I'm trapped with him, like in a bus. If I'm alone, I might feel fear. This guy clearly has no decency. Of course, there's a red flag going off in the back of my mind. What if he assaults me? And I feel angry. <laughs> Why is it that just walking down the street, minding my own business, opens me up to all of these unsolicited comments from strangers about my body? A couple years ago, I had another incident where I went off on a dude who was harassing me at a gas station. I told him to fuck off, and he laughed. <laughs> you're pretty cute when you're mad. That moment was pivotal for me because I realized I'm not a person to this guy. I'm not a human being who's giving a clear back off signal. No, I was a cute thing, an object for him to look at, poke and prod at for his own pleasure. These guys think it's okay because they objectify and disrespect women, trying to put me in my place, deciding where I will and won't feel safe and comfortable. And guess what, dude bros? That's called misogyny. So how can you respond if you're being harassed in the street? Here are a few options. You could return the favor. Oh, baby, you're so sexy. Oh, wanna get with me? Come get it, baby. Come get it. You give him the stink eye. La, la, la. What'd he say? Huh? What'd you say to me? So flattery. Oh, my God. Are you talking to me? You think I'm sexy? Oh, my God, I waited my whole life for this moment. You could tell him off. Hey, asshole, fuck off. I'm a creep. Creeps hate being called creeps. Ugh, you're a creep. You can sass their ass. I think you missed the part where nobody asked your fucking opinion. Oh my god, you're like one of those guys who totally catcalls and treats women like shit. Or you can kick their ass. Bro, do you even lift? Don't ever respond in a way that you think will jeopardize your safety. That's the most important thing. But then after that, you gotta do what's gonna help you feel and maintain control. When I respond, I'm very firm and I walk away right after. Don't engage or have a conversation with them. It's really important to sort of be conscientious about the experiences of people that you're talking to on the street. The proper way to handle seeing an attractive woman in public is to keep your thoughts to yourself. Don't holler at women who are on the street. Don't give them compliments, no matter how nice or innocent they feel to you, you don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, right? And if you're not one of these douchebags, call those guys out. Hey dude, what are you doing? She's not a dog. She is a human being. Then go ponder the bizarre world that we live in. At some point you just, you get tired, you know, you get tired of dealing with it. Last week, Patrick Howley came on this program, and I got to tell you something. I, you know, when we were preparing for that interview, we caught that article the day before because uh, uh, we were alerted to it because Rush made some joke that was so embarrassing. I won't even repeat it. 
uh, that referenced that article, and it was about staring at women. Should I just repeat that Rush's joke was, uh, from now on, folks, when a woman complains about you staring at her, you walk over to her and say, excuse me, but your breasts are staring at me. So he actually said this, like in human actual life said this. It's embarrassing to even repeat it or hear it. Uh, and then we knew that he was referencing an article about uh, about basically uh, uh, looking at women being banned by liberals. So we knew we needed to talk to this kid. And to be honest, we, I kind of thought, like, this kid is going to be like some – like jerky libertarian type that I met in college and he's just going to what he'll do is he'll find like one example like the 6 like the 6 year old who was like suspended suspended from school for sexual harassment last week or something something totally ludicrous he'll use that one example that's ludicrous that has nothing to do with anything but it is ludicrous and then he'll just be like come on man you know and basically he'll just be a troll but what actually surprised me was that kid was really sincere and really upset that he might not be able to check out women in the subway anymore. And, uh, and of course, he informed us that I think the most important revelation of that interview is that there is a silent majority of women that want to be harassed on the street. Uh, I didn't know that. I don't know the uh, secret uh, research backing that up. But apparently Rush also has access to this trove of research uh, and, and, and some insight uh, into women uh, uh, being looked at on the street. So as we, as we uh, continue on the right-wing creep beat, let's... The right-wing creep beat. Let's play that, that sound. I, I literally feel like an employee on To Catch a Predator when I do these stories. It's so frigging disturbing. Rush, why don't you, uh, why don't you go take a seat over there? Yeah, sir, yeah, right, yeah. What are you doing here? What's going on, Rush? All right, let's play this. There are going to be some women <laughs> I can come. Now, I'm not going to, like, the point is I don't know what that sound is and it's creepy. Please, go ahead. <laughs> All right. I could compound the controversy right now with my next sentence, but <laughs> there are going to be some women uh, that, that, that are going to sign on for this. Because they think, is they're, going to, they're going to believe that it's sexist. There will be liberal women, and, and they're going to think, it's yeah, this is a good thing. They don't like being stared at by men. It makes them nervous, so let's make it a crime or make it some kind of a taboo or something. But those women be a minority. Trust me. Trust me. The fact is, most men would love to be stared at by women. I, I, just don't doubt me on this. And my guess is that most women actually are intrigued by it and have developed techniques and skills for dealing with it. They're born with those, too. Don't doubt me. This all works out. Okay. I, I just want to say that we heard something like this with Patrick Howley when he when he called upon Nixon's silent majority. Yeah, right. Where, where conservatives, they somehow think that they know what, what, what this silent majority of women want. That they, they, there's, they're, they're, most women want this, but they're not out there saying they want it, but we know what they want. Well, Rush has a special 
X-ray vision and insight on women. It's like you remember that there was there was some uh, terrible uh, movie called like what women really want or what women really think, where a guy can hear women's inner thoughts, uh, and that's what Rush has, obviously. Of course, nothing would ever involve actually listening to what women say. The countless women who say, no, I prefer to not be harassed in my workplace. No, I prefer to not be yelled at on the street. No, I prefer to not be uh, 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 stared at and eyeballed in the subway. All of that is a passing blip in the projection and fantasy of the right-wing universe and Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, I just want to say, when he says, and women have this all figured out, now, Let's go down the spectrum of what people are talking about because as soon as when, – when women – when I know about women who do work on these issues and they talk about harassment and street culture and things like this and they're not talking about not being able to flirt with men or, what, or any other nonsense that these people have in their heads about what they're talking about. They're talking about cultures of harassment on the street, cultures of harassment – uh, in workplaces. And what are cultures of harassment and power dynamics connect to? They connect with things like sexual assault, rape, lack of advancement, dehumanization. So while Rush is talking about his psychic fantasy about the silent majority of women that Patrick Cowley also talked about, we know that there is a rape crisis in this country. We know that in the real world, according to research from the uh, National Research Council, there is an alarming underreport of rapes in America. We know that when women actually talk about their experience of being checked out by Patrick Halley and Rush Limbaugh, they don't say, oh my God, I don't want anybody to ever think I'm attractive or ever have any type of dating experience or anything. They're talking about the experience of somebody on a street corner thinking that they have power over you to make a comment on your body and a sexual proposition to you. And I got to tell you, I know he says that men would love to be checked out. I actually don't think that most men would want to be feel that they might be in some type of physical danger or that they're just frankly being disrespected and mocked on the street. In fact, when men do feel that they're being disrespected and mocked on the street, that usually leads to a lot of conflict. That leads to fights. What are you looking at? And when you add that dynamic with all the things that we know about sexual assault in this country, all of the things that we know about the realities facing women, to go off into some petty fantasy universe like the world is just one big uh, scene out of Animal House is delusional, it's pathetic, and it's not the cause. So I want to be really clear, not you, so you idiots don't conflate this on the right. It's not the cause, but it is the handmaiden. It is the facilitator of, yes, a rape culture, which if you have any concern about living in an open, democratic, and, yeah, actually sexually liberated and open society, you need to care about. So wake the fuck up.
my name is Tasiajuk Iakai, and I live in Alaska, in one of the remote parts of Alaska, and I thought I'd weigh in on the LGBTQ rights episode focused on transgender people. And when I lived in a bigger city, actually, I got more flack for it than when I live in a tiny community like I do now. And so change is coming to smaller cities and smaller towns and communities faster than you think and as little attention as it has gotten in the media I think if more people would come out and admit that they are transgender it would help people understand and maybe raise awareness and so I don't have an easy solution to the problem of you know the T kind of being silent in LGBTQ but I think I have a little bit of a solution in that if we all came out a little bit more, it would help a little bit more. Just my two cents. Great podcast. I love listening to it. And have a good day. Hi, Jay. This is um, Raven. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was just listening to the episode on healthcare. Something else that no one seems to be talking about. I live in Louisville, which we are right across the border from Indiana. And amongst people that I know, there's actually people in their 20s and 30s who are not eligible for healthcare in Indiana because Indiana didn't agree to expand their Medicare and their Medicaid, and they're actually talking about moving over across the river to Louisville so that they can get on to Medicaid here in Kentucky because in Kentucky they qualify for health care and they qualify for free health care from Medicaid. I think this is something that some states are going to start seeing, that people are moving, you know, in the case of where I'm at, you know, people are moving 15, 20 minutes to be across the river to be in Kentucky and to be able to qualify for the Medicaid expansion. And in some of these other states, people that can move across the state line may do so. That's one option out there possibly for people who can't get health care. Another option, of course, is always to pass um, H.R. 676, uh, Medicare for All. And the other thing I think that might be successful in helping expand the conversation with Medicare, especially to con- Medicare for all, especially to conservatives, is to remind people that Medicare is a government program. It is highly successful and it is highly popular. You know, if it's good for people who are 65 and old- older, why isn't it good for someone in their 20s and 30s? So that's what I have to say. Thanks. Hey, Jay, this is uh, Tony Murphy with the over here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I just wanted to speak a little bit about the transgender issue. So I was going to give a quick quick little perspective on my part. I had written a, a paper for a conference about transphobia and whether or not the inspirations of Martin Luther King Jr. could have ended this phobia that is taking place right now. Uh, so I just wanted to say that uh, homophobia is, 
has been widespread across the world for the last century, uh, from and for much of the new century, as we know. Um, however, lesbians, gays, and bisexuals have been able to avoid bigotry in most social spaces as long as they they take steps to conceal their true sexual orientation. The transgendered, however, uh, do not have this luxury and are constantly ridiculed, harassed, denied, abused, assaulted, and, uh, and even murdered, of course, for even for having gender dysphoria or some sort of gender variance in our society. And uh, we just reject um, anyone who does not follow the gender roles prescribed for each sex. Now, um, in his final book before the fashion assassination, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, actually wrote about globaliz that globalization was upon us and that we as a world community would eventually have to accept one another into what he referred to as the world house. This was, uh, this was the final chapter of his final book before his assassination. And then this chapter, he explored transphobia through the lens, um, through his own personal lens, and he extends the message of tolerance and acceptance uh, of everyone, because he knew that because of globalization economically was upon us, so would social globalization be upon us. And um, at the time, he of course, he meant blacks, whites, Hispanics, people of different race and color, uh, but I also think that he uh, he would have also wanted people of different sexual orientations and people of different uh, gender conformity. So I just wanted to let people know and rem or remind people that King said numerous times that a threat to justice anywhere was certainly a threat to justice everywhere, and that does essentially include the transgender community. Thank you so much. Keep up with the show. Have a good day, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Uh, so today is mostly just sort of show notes, programming notes. Uh, I want to remind you that the Stitcher Awards are going on. Uh, the nomination process is happening until December 24th. So get those nominations in. I'm only going to have one more chance to remind you. So get on it. Uh, sign up. Just frankly, Google Stitcher Awards, sign up, and then nominate Best of Left for the Best News and Politics section. Like I said, that ends December 24th, and I think you can uh, nominate a show every day until then. Um, and now I said I, I only get to remind you one more time before then, which brings me to my next point, which is that uh, there's going to be one more episode before the Christmas break. I'm going to post a show on December 21st. I'm very excited to to say that it will be another War on Christmas episode. I don't think I had one last year. I think I re-ran the one from 2011 last year. But this year, I have enough material to make a brand new one. I haven't decided exactly what's going to go in it yet, but I'm sure it's going to be excellent. Because And those are always my favorite to make because they're ridiculous. After that, uh, you know, during the break, I'm going to post a couple of rerun episodes. Keep in mind that the last time I posted a rerun episode, a listener wrote in saying that that rerun episode I had posted was basically the best thing 
he thought had ever been created in the history of the world. So when I post reruns uh, during the holidays, go go ahead and go into them with that expectation and then be ready to be disappointed. But th they'll probably be pretty good. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, new website. No big deal. Uh, only, only, you know, five years or so past the point when the old website probably should have been replaced and only a couple of years after I actually started working on it, uh, there's a brand new best of the left website up. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't have every bit of functionality that we hope to implement in the very near future, but it's looking good. It's hosting, you know, the podcast, uh, the show notes and, and, you know, the, the things that a website is supposed to do, no big deal. You know, it's, it's frustrating. Like, I think that the, so the brand new logo that's on the website, I think that logo was was created probably about two years ago. And only now is, is it, you know, being published to the website. Why? Because because I'm better at making podcasts than I am at managing web developers. It's a frustrating truth. Uh, so so check out the new website. It's, uh, you know, fantastic in every way, except for one giant way. Maybe maybe the only reason you uh, have to really use the website uh, might be completely broken and destroyed. The, uh, the archives did not come over from the old site as intended. You know, th there, was, there wasn't going to be a way to really cleanly bring all of the archives over from the old site. And so we thought, okay, we'll just link back to the old site and the old site will just be there static as, you know, just the archives of the old episodes. Well, it turned out that didn't work either. Uh, the old website is sort of uh, broken. It's like a skeleton of its former self. So instead of doing, you know, lots of painstaking work to try to make that functional, I'm going to do what I probably should have done a long time ago, which is to have only a limited number of episodes, probably in the in the range of like 50, which is plenty for a timely show, you know, going five months uh, back. Uh, about 50 episodes will be available for free. And then the archives, which are already part of the members only uh, content, you know, get you know, every bit of the archives, uh, which are like hosted in, in Dropbox folders that, that members get access to, um, that that's just where the archives are going to have to be because it's just too logistically uh, difficult and not worth the time and effort to try to make it, uh, you know, a functional web-based, uh, you know, website archive. So if you are one of those people who is like going back through the archives and, you know, listening to old episodes and now the website has disappeared... I, I apologize for that. There is one other option for you besides becoming a member. I mean, it's membership is minimum of only five bucks a month. So it's pretty cheap uh, as it is. Plus you get all the bonus content. I, I feel obligated to mention. Although there's one other option. If you get the smartphone app, either for iOS or Android, those archives are almost, uh, you know, totally inclusive. It's not the absolute easiest thing in the world to, you know, dig through the archives on the iPhone app to, to go, you know, way, way back, you know, but it's there. It's, it's possible. It's doable. All in all, exciting things happening. If you're one of the people and you, you feel that there are inconveniences associated with the new website, then you have my deepest apologies. It was not done on purpose. 
But that is going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources of music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories